One of the most memorable assignments that I had in undergrad was in a, an art history class, the only art history class I've ever taken. And our assignment was to go to the Art Institute of Chicago, pick a work of art, and spend two hours just sitting in front of it, looking at it. And then write a reflection paper, not from research, just based only on that time spent reflecting on this piece of art. And not just any work of art, it had to be a piece of modern art. <laughs> I picked an enormous abstract piece that was mostly shades of black and red. That is all I remember about it. It's nothing I would have spent time on if it hadn't been for this assignment, because I'm not a visual artist. There are no visual artists in my family. I do not know the visual language of art. But there I sat for the full two hours, observing, wondering, finding details I hadn't noticed before, paying attention not just to the details, but to how I responded to this work of art that had been considered worthy of hanging in one of the biggest, wonderful art museums in the world. Someone chose this and put it there. It was worthy of attention. Many patrons, as you can imagine, walked right by this piece as I was sitting there. Some probably didn't even notice it was there. But there I sat, sitting, looking, allowing this piece of art into my mind and my life and my imagination. That is a little picture of the posture of epiphany, this great feast of the church that we celebrate this morning. Technically, yesterday was Epiphany, January 6th every year, but this is one of those days that's important enough we can move the date so we celebrate it on a Sunday morning, and here we are. The Feast of Epiphany was actually part of the church year before Christmas was. We know that the Eastern Church celebrated it as early as the third century, and the Western Church not far after that. Well, as Christmas has become more prominent for us in the Western world, Epiphany's kind of shrunk, it's one more, what's that about again, liturgical thing. But Christmas needs epiphany. Just imagine if Jesus was born as a baby and grew up and lived and died and nobody ever knew of his identity and significance. We talked a couple weeks ago about how God's work in Christ starts in the hidden and the small, but it doesn't stay there. In his book on the church year, Bobby Gross writes that the season of Epiphany celebrates how Jesus's identity and purpose are gradually revealed to those who respond to him. They're gradually revealed. In other words, it takes some time to take in who Jesus is, kind of like that painting in the Art Institute. In the season after Epiphany, the scriptures are going to keep us focused on Jesus revealing more and more of who he is until the transfiguration when his divine glory shines forth in a blaze. He's gradually revealed. And he's gradually revealed to one group of people in particular, to those who respond to him. And that is our theme for this morning. 
In Epiphany, all are invited to come and see, to stick with Jesus, like that painting in the Art Institute. But our ability to see him revealed depends on the posture that we take. This morning, we're looking at Matthew 2 and the three main sets of characters Matthew writes about. All three sets hear about the birth of the one born king of the Jews, but only one takes the posture that leads them to Jesus. Let's take a look. First of all, King Herod. My kids have started calling Herod King Horrid, and that's about right. What do we know about King Herod the Great? Well, he was born about 72 BC in Idumea, right? We've all heard of that. (laughs) South of Judea, a region formerly known as Edom, which means he's a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. Ethnically, Herod was what we might now call Arab, Herod the Arab. Herod's father's family had converted to Judaism, so he was raised Jewish. At the same time, he was enamored with Rome from a pretty early age. His father was a political maneuverer, good friends with Julius Caesar. And so was Herod as he grew up. Herod became governor of Galilee at a very young age, maybe in his early 20s. And he gained favor for how good he was at getting taxes from them for Rome. Herod ended up being appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate and then solidified his position through force and with the support of the one and only Mark Antony. I got really interested in this on Wikipedia this week, guys. I did not know very much about Herod. He had his success as his king, as seen through the many building projects that he did, including the Western Wall in Jerusalem is a remnant of one of his big building projects. And yet Herod was only king of the Jews at the pleasure of Rome, and he knew it. Herod would do whatever it took to get and keep power, killing children, including his own, marrying, killing a wife, manipulating and deceiving and killing some more. Emperor Caesar Augustus supposedly said, better to be Herod's pig than his son. And according to Josephus, during Herod's final illness, Herod was so worried that no one would mourn his death when he was gone, that he commanded a large group of distinguished men come to Jericho where he was, and he gave an order that they should be killed at the time of his death so that the displays of grief that he craved would take place. Uh, People did not do that for him after he died. That's a little telling. Herod, his security, his status was fragile. It was fragile with Rome and it was fragile in the eyes of the Jewish people because he was not Jewish enough. He was not of the line of David. He's not a king from the line of David, and he knew it. He maintained his power through fear, fear of him and what he could do, but also fear of Rome. If you don't like my rule, you'll like it even less when Rome shows up. I'm the lesser of two evils, guys. So when the Magi show up announcing the birth of the one born king of the Jews, they show up in Jerusalem. This is the natural place to look for a king. Maybe they even thought this king would be one of Herod's sons. No wonder Herod and all of Jerusalem with him are disturbed. They fear. Herod searches for the Messiah, not as the hope of Israel, but as a threat to be eliminated. A threat to Herod's power 
and the fragile peace with Rome. Herod's posture, his posture towards the news of the Messiah is fear and control. And his actions bear the fruit of fear, violence, deception, a price paid by the vulnerable. If Herod is in my analogy of the Art Institute, you might imagine him him feeling so uncomfortable with that modern art piece that he buys the museum and destroys all of the modern art just to make sure he gets rid of it. Herod receives this revelation, this epiphany of the Messiah as a threat to his regime. And he is absolutely right about that. Jesus is a threat to the powers of this world and to the principalities and powers often at work through them because Jesus is a child of the Magnificat. He casts down the mighty from their thrones. Stanley Hauerwas points out that the Herods of the world are never as powerful as they seem. For Herods die, Rome's fall apart. Jesus' kingdom still comes. Now we might say yes and amen to a Jesus who overturns the powers of oppression. And yet, Hauerwas again, the fear that possessed Herod's life is not absent from our own. Because Jesus changes things. Come and see might lead to come and die. We celebrate the idea of a Psalm 72 king who brings peace and flourishing and justice to the poor and needy. But what if that king asks us to change, ask me to change my life or lifestyle or political stance in order to bring that shalom about? What if the king asks me to give up power or privileges or rights out of love for him and neighbor? What if the changing world scares us because truly scary things are happening and we long for someone to make us feel secure again? A Herod who is horrid, but better than the alternative. When we feel afraid, sometimes we feel tempted to turn to the ways of Herod instead of the way of Jesus. Fear is a powerful motivator. Herod is invited to come and see, but he responds in fear and control, and so he misses Jesus. Next up, the chief priests and teachers of the law. These are the folks Herod brings together and consults about the Messiah. Herod knows just enough to know who to ask about the prophecies. He brings in the professors and the lawyers, and the academics, and the intellectuals. And of course, they know the right answers. Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Here's the scripture, here's the chapter, here's the verse, here are the scholars who support it, all our citations are in order. Done, Messiah located. And what do they do next? Nothing. These are presumably the people you'd think would be most motivated to find the Messiah. And Bethlehem is about 10 miles away from Jerusalem. This would be a manageable trip. And they do nothing. 
This is mind-boggling and totally relatable. Because how often in my life have I known the right answer about Jesus and stopped there? Stopped short of actually relating to him, pursuing him, listening to him, not just being right about him, but as Brene Brown puts it, getting it right and following him. These guys have the right data, but they have the wrong posture. So by staying at a distance, they stay at an information level and they miss Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes are like a museum cataloger who knew the painting was in the museum. They knew who painted it. They knew when it was painted. They'd read all the reviews and the critiques of it and they could talk about it with eloquence and they knew when it arrived at the museum, but they've never actually come to see the painting. They have the right data, but the wrong posture. So they too miss Jesus. And that brings us to the final set of figures, the ones you've been waiting for, the Magi. These are my favorite characters in all of the Christmas stories. You probably know that they weren't kings. There were probably way more than three of them. In fact, they probably had a pretty big entourage based on the fact that all of Jerusalem noticed and was talking about them when they showed up. So what do we know about Magi? We know they come from the east, probably maybe Babylon, Persia, modern-day Iraq or Iran. We know that the Magi was a well-known and pretty respected class of people in those days. They were maybe the scientists of their day. They were learned men. They were seeking to understand history and the world based on the movement of the stars. They were pagan, not Jewish, and yet seems like Jewish folks at the time seemed to have some level of acceptance of their way of looking at the world, even though the Old Testament says, don't don't listen to the stars, find the prophecy of the Lord. Anyway, Herod and Jerusalem don't dismiss them out of hand because they know these people, not these individuals. They know this type of person, these pagan foreigners showing up, chasing a star, asking about the king of the Jews. It's, It's somehow not something out of their realm of knowledge. They don't just dismiss it. I wonder how the Magi even had heard about the king of the Jews. I wonder if perhaps they'd heard about the Messiah from Jewish folks back in their home. Maybe the descendants of the Jewish people who'd been led into exile into Babylon and Persia, where these Magi might have came from. I wonder if the descendants of those Jewish exiles still kept the faith and passed it on. The Magi travel back out of the land in which God's people were exiles, back to the land of promise, seeking the promised Jewish Messiah, fulfilling Isaiah's promise. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. These pagan foreigners correctly discern God's leading in the star and later in their dreams as well. God speaks to them in a way they can hear. He meets them where they are at and leads them further in. But they still needed some revelation to lead them all the way to Bethlehem. And ironically, it's Herod who gets them the revelation from the scriptures that they need and hands it on to them. How's that for some irony? (laughs) Well, now they have the star and they have scripture. 
And when the star lands over Bethlehem, the way the scriptures pointed to, they are overwhelmed with joy. The Greek is something ridiculous, like they rejoiced with very much great joy. This is a lot of joy. Something in them responds to this confirmation that this was God who was leading them. And they find Jesus. And when they find Jesus, they don't bat an eye at the fact that he's not in the palace in Jerusalem. He's in small house in this little town. They don't bat an eye. They kneel. They bow. They give extravagant kingly gifts. They worship. The Magi respond to the bit of revelation that they receive with receptive hearts. So God reveals more. And again, they respond with receptive hearts. And God leads them to Jesus. These Gentile star readers are like an art patron or a student who notices the painting, takes a closer look, and sits down and gazes in wonder and awe and gratitude for its unique beauty. God reveals himself to these Gentiles with receptive hearts. This is the amazing mystery Paul says has been revealed in Jesus, that all nations are part of one body. This would have been particularly relevant for the church in Matthew's own time, wrestling with, where'd all the Gentiles come from? Well, the start of it is right here with these magi. I'm struck that after they worship Jesus, they don't seem to stay in Jerusalem. They don't stay in Jerusalem. They don't convert to Judaism that we know of. God sends them back to the east. I wish I knew what happened after they got home. I have to believe that given their receptive hearts, God continued to reveal himself to them through Jesus Christ. I have to think that their come and see must have blossomed into the second emphasis of epiphany, go and tell. I hope I get to know someday. I have hope for them because receptivity and worship is the posture of a disciple. That is the posture we're invited into in epiphany. We receive a little bit of revelation about who Jesus is, a little glimpse. When we respond with openness, we receive a little more. And so on and so on until we behold his glory and fall on our faces in awe and worship. I am old enough that as a kid, we had one of those old boxy TVs with the rabbit ears. Mm-hmm. And when the picture got fuzzy, we had to adjust the antenna you know, this way and that to try to get a clearer signal. That image comes to mind for me as we enter the season after Epiphany because I want ourselves to ask Two questions. What in our lives or in our community needs adjusting so we have better reception? 
meaning more receptivity and openness to Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. What needs adjusting so we have better reception for what the Lord is up to in our midst? And two, what in our lives or in our community needs adjusting so that we are a clearer picture of who Jesus is to the watching world? What needs adjusting so we are a clearer picture of who Jesus is to the watching world? God reveals himself in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the created world, in scripture, in the community of faith, and at the table of the Lord. Open your hearts. Come and see. Come and worship. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.